be seated. It's good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here as well. Uh, we normally go through a book of the Bible at a time expositionally. That simply means we look into the details of the text, draw out of the text what the author originally meant to his original audience. Uh, we've been walking through Exodus, and we've taken a break from Exodus for these four weeks to do a short series, our summer series, on gospel community. Uh, we do this every summer. Last summer we did gospel peace. This, this summer we're doing gospel community. And last week we started with a key text, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, and the emphasis that we are now a people. And we talked about the fact that if we're redeemed in Jesus, if we are saved, personal salvation cannot be separated from salvation or redemption to a people. We looked at that key text, and we're going to look at a key text today, 1 Corinthians 12 that Evan read just a second ago. Next week, we'll look at Ephesians 2, another key text on gospel community. And then the last week, we'll look at, we'll look at John chapter 13. Um, what we're talking about, or what we talked about last week, was what is gospel community? A place where we can know and be known. And the only thing that reconciles us together to want to know one another and be known by one another or need to know and know one another is first because we've been known by God in Jesus. So we're redeemed in Christ and then we are redeemed to a people. That was the text that we explored last week. And so we can't separate these two things. To separate these two things is to do harm to the body. That's what we'll see today. It actually is, is harmful to our own spiritual growth and harmful for the rest of the body and its spiritual growth. We talked about the fact that we are, as we are redeemed, we are redeemed into one people, that we are part of the universal body of Christ if we are followers of Christ, the, the universal church, the global body of Christ. But we can't know all of them. But we can know a few in a local assembly or a local gathering, and that's actually what the Bible calls the church. That's the Greek word that it uses. Ekklesia means gathering of called out ones. Gathering of those who've raised their hand and said, yes, Jesus is king of my life. I submit to his rule and to his reign. And I'm following him, pursuing him. He's re redeemed and rescued me, and I want this community to be in community with me, and I want to be in community with it. I want to walk together celebrating the good news of what Jesus has done in my heart and in my life. And when we do that, we can begin to get a foretaste of the future kingdom family that we are redeemed to experience when Jesus returns. But, and this is important, just because we have, if you or a follower of Christ, just because you've been redeemed into the global body and just because you're given the privilege of a local assembly, a local gathering, a local church, it doesn't mean we will experience the gospel community that we were intended to experience. It takes work. It takes effort. And many of us aren't willing to do the hard work that it takes. Many of us will take gospel community, the church, and the smaller, intimate, deeper relationships that we could have, we'll take them for granted. Instead, what we need to do is see them as a gift, as we'll see in the text, and see them as a gift to help me grow, and I need to do the work of growing deeper in relationship together. Rather than ignore it or treat it as secondary add-on to the Christian life, I need to see this as vital. I need to see you as vital in my life. 
I need to see the deeper intimacy relationships, intimate relationships that are offered to me in Christ as vital to my spiritual growth. We'll see that in the text. And rather than avoid it because of the hard, often conflict-filled work of building relationships, I need to press into and learn how to die to myself and serve you self-sacrificially. And again, we'll see that in the text, and we'll see that our ultimate motivator for that is Jesus. So this is an important thing. Each week we're looking at these verses, and and we're going to understand what gospel community is, and we're going to just see the text nudge us just a little bit more to what it ought to look like when we're together in gospel community, what we ought to experience as we strive to do this. In our text today, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul takes this argument that we talked about last week, and he, and he presses it further. And this morning, we're going to see that we are one body, but many parts. One body, but many parts. Something, again, Peter emphasized last week, that we are redeemed into one body. And now Paul pulls that apart a little bit and says, yes, we are redeemed into one body, and each individual matters. Each individual in that body is unique and vital to the whole, such that you can't pull it apart. You can't pull and say, I don't need you. You can't say that I'm superior to you or you're inferior to me. You can't do that. And Paul's going to address that in the text. And then a third thing we're going to see this morning is that God has strategically gifted each one of us and strategically placed each one of us together for the sake of one another, to give ourselves to one another in love and using the gifts that he's given us. And then we're going to look at finally why it matters. So those are our four points this morning that we're going to explore. First, we are one body with many parts. Our text, again, is 1 Corinthians 12, and, and Paul reiterates this. He just beats it to, to, to no end. He, it, it's, he says it so many times in the Word, even if, if you listen to how Evan read it and even reading the text, it, it, it's... It's clunky, it's, it's difficult, and so we have to sort of pull it apart to be able to see it, at least I do, to be able to understand what's happening here. And what we see is that Paul makes the point five different times in the text, just the text that we read today, that we are one body if we're redeemed in Christ Jesus. Look at how he says it in 12a, the body is one and has many members. 12b, though it has many members, it's one. Verse 13, we've all been baptized into one body. Verse 14, that one body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Do you think he's trying to make a point? We are one by virtue of being redeemed in Christ Jesus. That it's now part of our DNA that we are united as one in the body of Christ. He, he reiterates it in verses 15 and 16, really the latter half of those two verses. He says, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less part of the body. He reiterates it again, verse 16, same sentence, different parts. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Again, what's the point? You can say that you're not part of the body. You can even say, I don't want to be part of the body. But Paul says twice, it doesn't matter what you say. 
You are part of the body of Christ if you have been redeemed. What he's going to go on to say is, therefore, you cannot ignore the body. You cannot say, I don't need the body or its individual parts in my life. So each one of us is, has been united into one body. And then he, he turns it and he emphasizes that each one of those parts that make up the one body, he says, each one is important. The body is made up of many individual parts. Again, look at the, the list together, side by side. The body is one, but it has many members. Though it has many members, it's one. We've all, there's the plurality, the diversity, have been baptized into one body. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Again, he's making a significant point that, that we have been redeemed and rescued in Christ Jesus, and if we have a new identity in Christ, we have a new community. You cannot separate those two. Even if you say, even if you want to, you cannot do it. That they're integral together, that they go together, that they're essential. And here's the, the, the big point, it's a last phrase in verse 12 that he uses, and this is what he's trying to get at. He says, so it is with Christ. What is he saying? What is he making the point of when he says, so it is with Christ? That we are many, but we are united in one body. We're not united as an organization. We're not united as an institution. We're united as an organism into the body of Christ. We are now family if we are redeemed in Christ Jesus. And we can't separate those two things. And if we're family, we can't say, I don't need you or you're unimportant to my life. And this is getting at what Paul is really trying to hammer home in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 and 14. See, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, to the Corinthian church because they had sent him a letter asking him multiple questions. A whole host of questions. We don't have that list of questions. We can identify what those questions were by how he starts many of the chapters. Now concerning is the key phrase. And he does that in chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts. He's answering a question that the Corinthian church had asked him. He's answering and addressing an issue that was prevalent in the Corinthian church. And that was the division and the discord that was so prevalent there. In the first part of, of 1 Corinthians, he talks about that there's jealousy and strife and division and backbiting and infighting. He says, because you're immature, because you don't recognize ultimately what he's going to say here in 1 Corinthians 12, because you've taken your eyes off the giver and you've put them on the gifts. And, and every single time in the Christian life, when we take our eyes off of Christ, when we take our eyes off God, when we take our eyes off the giver and we place them on his gifts, Every single time, it will lead to discord and disunity and fragmentation and fracturing horizontally. Why? Because we were intended to live rooted in our vertical identity and out of an overflow of that relationship, it overflows into our horizontal relationships. Why? Because this is how we were created and this is the result of the fall. 
As a result of the fall, we took our eyes off of gift. We said, I know what's best. I make the better ruler and king of my life. And we took, put our eyes on the gifts. This is what Paul makes in the argument of in, in Romans chapter 1. I, I look at the gifts, and because I look at that, I'm fractured and fragmented from God, and it will naturally lead to fracturing and fragmented horizontally. And Paul is writing to address that. He's trying to address a church that's not walking according to the truth of the gospel. That's not walking in their identity as followers of Christ. And what's the result? There's a sense in which some are feeling inferior and some are feeling superior. Or some that are feeling superior are making some feel inferior. And it's leading to division in the church. And that's ultimately Paul's greatest concern that he addresses here in this text. And so he, he makes right out of the gate this point that we are one but many parts, and then he makes these two sub-points that are just so important for any gospel-centered community to understand. The first point is that each one of us is unique and vital to the whole. And the second point is that we've been uniquely placed, strategically placed in one another's lives to spur us up to worship God, to know him more intimately. So let's take those two points and let's understand those and unpack them. First, unpack them. Every part is unique and vitally important. We see this beginning in, in verse 15 and 16. Paul is addressing the sense of inferiority in these two verses. So he says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand... I don't belong. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong. In other words, th there were some in the body that were feeling inferior. They were feeling insignificant. They were feeling as though they were unimportant. They were feeling as though they were useless in the body. They, they were feeling as though they were looking at their gifts, and they were looking at their gifts, and looking at theirs, and looking at theirs, and they were saying, well, mine, mine just aren't that big a deal. Mine aren't as visible. Mine aren't as helpful. I don't know as much. I'm not as equipped as much. I don't have as much. I haven't experienced as much. I'm not. And they looked at their gifts and they felt inferior. Paul flips the script in verses 21 down to 24 and he addresses those who felt superior. And really that's what's happening here and who he's really trying to get at. Because why would they begin to feel inferior? First, because they took their eyes off of Jesus who says that they are infinitely valuable. But secondly, because there were some in the congregation that were saying, hey, you're, you know, you're not as important here. You're not as necessary here. M my gifts are obviously more significant. My gifts are obviously more helpful. My gifts are obviously more impactful. My gifts are obviously, they, they influence more people. And they were beginning to feel superior. Look at what he says in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And then he repeats the same thing, different parts. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. 
which are, 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 more, are more presentable parts, do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. In these verses, Paul is, is trying to address two issues. One is the inferiority saying, I, I'm not as valuable as such and such. The other is the, is the feeling that, of superiority saying, you know, you're not, you're not really that important, you're not necessary here. We don't need you. Paul is addressing what happens when you lose sight of your identity in Christ. When you lose sight of the gospel, when you take your eyes off of Jesus and what the scriptures say about you, that you are so infinitely loved someone was willing to die, that you were so infinitely sinful someone had to die. When you take those two things and you forget what the word says about you, you take your eyes off of Christ, you begin to look horizontally. You begin to look at your gifts, you begin to look at your life, and you naturally fall into the comparison trap. You begin to look at some and you say, well, I'm just not as good as that person. I just, I'll never know as much, have as much, do as much. I'll never, man, they're just so great and I'm just, I'm such, I'm so terrible. And you'll begin to despair and you'll begin to feel inferior. And what does every person do? We look to someone else to make us feel good. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. At least... At least, and what are they feeling? Oh, I'm never going to be like that person. And we begin to have this comparison trap, this feeling of superiority and inferiority. And Paul is saying, enough. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. It matters what the Word says about you. It matters what Jesus says about you. And there is no gift that's more important than another in terms of spiritual gifts, what he's addressing here. There's no one individual in the body that's more important than the other. The hand is not more important than the foot. The eye is not more important than the ear, or so on and so forth. You are each individually unique and vital to the whole body. This is the point that Paul is trying to get at. He reiterates it in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? If we were all one member, he says, one part, the body would cease to exist. We wouldn't be a body, we'd just be a head laying there. (laughs) We'd just be an eyeball on the ground. We wouldn't be a body. So every part matters. Every part is unique. Every part is vital to the whole. Now here's how it fleshes itself out in real world experience in the context of the church. It's likely not that someone was so arrogant as to say, hey, I'm a big deal around here. I've got the gift of teaching and I'm obviously the most influential here and and I'm the most important okay and and I see what you're doing but you're really not that significant around here it's not likely such overt arrogant pride it's more likely covert pride in other words it's the idea or the sentiment or the thought that we begin to think you know what I know what's best you know what You know what, this is what the church ought to be about. This is what the church really ought to be. It really ought to be about discipleship. That's the church. The church is about discipleship. It's got to be about discipleship. And someone else says, no, 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 wait a second. No, it's about about evangelism. It's it's this. And no, no, another person says, no, 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 it's about service, acts of mercy. And, And no, no, it's about hospitality. And each person begins to covertly, in their pride, elevate 
what they think is most superior. And de-elevate or de-escalate those, those others that they think are inferior. And we go back and forth. And you won't spend five minutes in a church or community group where this doesn't happen. This, this is a, a tendency in all churches to begin to, to think this is most important and, and no, 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 this is most important. And what happens, we begin to, to, to divide, we begin to fight, there begins to be invi- infighting, and then we begin to divide and we turn into our rival factions. Those that are all about discipleship and those that are all about service and those that are all about evangelism and those that are all about hospitality. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, which I've recommended multiple times and highly recommend, he talks about this in his book. He talks about the wish dream or the ideal, that we all have a wish dream or an idealized view of what gospel community is or life together ought to look like. And what we tend to do with that wish dream is we begin to impose it on the community and say, this is what the church ought to be. This is what community ought to be like. This is what it has to be like. Listen to what he says. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community. Why? Because we're worshiping our agenda and our wish dream And we're elevating our wish dream, our ideal, what we think the church ought to be about or the community ought to be about. We're elevating it above the people it was intended to serve. Here's how he goes on. He he who loves his dream of community or the ideal more than the Christian community itself, the people, becomes a destroyer of the Christian community, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. He goes on to talk about we, we ought to give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed. Even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness and small faith and difficulty. If all we do is complain to God that everything is so terrible and paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship or our community grow according to the measure and the riches it was intended to grow in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? What is Paul reiterating here? What is Paul getting at? Maybe rather than saying, you know what, I think the church ought to be about discipleship. Maybe, maybe I, I think the church should be about service and evangelism and, and hospitality and, and whatever else we might think that the church and gospel community and life together in a community ought to be about. We elevate, you know, I think we should read the Bible more and I think we should spend more time in prayer. No, I think our group should be serving more. Rather than, rather than saying this is what I think it ought to be about, maybe we ought to pause and maybe we ought to listen Because maybe in that moment what we're doing is actually expressing our individual spiritual gifts. And maybe we are intended to be all of those things together as a body about discipleship and service and hospitality and evangelism and reading the word and studying it deeply and spending time in prayer. Maybe these are expressions, our wish dreams, our ideals, our expressions of our individual gifting. And Paul is saying, yes, 
You are each unique and vital and integral to the entire whole. Paul is making the point that rather than separating into our rival factions, dividing what Christ died to unite, maybe we bring those gifts to bear in the life of my fellow brothers and sisters, my family, my gospel community. This is exactly what he's trying to get at in 12 and 13 and 14. What he's going to repeat in Romans 12. What he's going to repeat in Ephesians 4. Three different books, three different places. That we each have been gifted, and this is the third point, each strategically gifted and strategically placed in one another's lives for the building up of the church, or another way of saying it, for your personal spiritual growth, your sanctification. This is our third point. God has strategically gifted and arranged each member in the body to give themselves for the sake of the whole. To sacrifice themselves for the sake of the whole. Not to say, take your eyes off of the, the giver and put it on the gift and say, you know what, I think this is the most important. No, to say, you know what, I've been given this gift to steward it for you. This is where Paul is going in the rest of this text. And I realize that third point is really a mouthful, so let's break it apart. We've each been uniquely gifted by God. We're each unique and vital to the whole, but we've also uniquely been gifted. This is his point in 1 Corinthians 12. In early part of 12, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. That's generous. It says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now concerning spiritual gifts, and then he goes on, concerning those you think are spiritual. It's, it's really, he's really He's, he's digging at the Corinthians. I know you think you know what spiritual is. I know you think you know what a person who, who ought to look like or ought to experience Christ. I know you think you know. I don't want you to be ignorant. Let me inform you. I don't want you to be uninformed. And then he goes on and he says, there are many gifts. There are various gifts. There are various services and various activities, but there's one Lord, one Spirit, one God. There's one triune God and anything you've been given by him is a gift to steward on behalf of others. It's not something you elevate and worship. In the, in the Corinthian church, they were, they were coming out of a pagan culture and, and experience was what they worshipped. And so naturally they worshipped the gifts that tended more towards experience. And Paul is saying these gifts were given not to divide you, but to unite you. You've each been uniquely gifted by God. He makes the same argument in Romans 12, 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. That word function is, it literally means responsibility. Do you recognize that you've been given a spiritual gift, and it's a responsibility, it's a stewardship. Stewardship for what? What do I do with it? You help grow the church. Not numerically, though that may happen, the individual person. You help grow each person. You help sanctify each person. How does that happen? You point them to the gospel regularly with your gift. 
He says we've, we've each been strategically placed. The second aspect of this, this third point here, we've each been strategically placed. And this is so important for us to understand. We've been strategically gifted and strategically, providentially, sovereignly placed in one another's lives. Here's what he says in verse 18. At, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. That word arrange means to systematically place. You have been uniquely gifted and you have been systematically placed by God in my life for my spiritual growth and sanctification. He says it again in verse 24. God has so composed the body. It's the similar concept as arranged, systematically placed, composed. He has put each individual person with their unique gifts in a strategic position and place. And that leads us to the question, to what end? Why is God bringing all of these ingredients together, which is really the language of composed? He takes individual parts that are separated and brings them together to make a distinct whole. Why is he doing this? To what end? What purpose is he doing this? In verse 7, chapter 12, earlier before our text that we read today, he says it's for the common good. Now, we all ought to be a city on a hill. We all ought to be salt and light in the world. That's a common good for, for mankind. But that's not what Paul's talking about here when he says common good. He's talking about common good for one another. You've been strategically gifted for the common good to, to serve one another, me, you, us, together, that I've been gifted to serve you, you've been gifted to serve me, that you've been gifted to serve them, and you've been gifted to serve them, and vice versa, all around the room for the common good. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, to sacrificially serve. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Same word, similar word to various gifts, services, and activities that he uses in, and Paul uses in the first part of 1 Corinthians 12. That all of the various gifts that God has uniquely given to each of us and uniquely st strategically placed each of us together, he's done it so that we serve one another. And why? Paul expands this in Ephesians 4. He says, to build up the church. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, you won't go, it's almost every two verses it feels like. He will say, upbuild, build up, builds up, benefit, over and over again, built up. It's, it's all of the gifts you've been uniquely gifted, strategically placed to build up. The, the word sometimes is translated equip. It, sometimes elsewhere, Paul says, it, it, it's for sanctification. It's for spiritual growth. You have been individually gifted, strategically placed for my spiritual growth and me for yours. It makes the body grow. In Ephesians 4.16, he says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in Love, or elsewhere he says, in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we are rescued by grace and that we are Christ's workmanship. That Greek word is poema. It can be translated poem. It can be translated art. For what? Good works. Where? To one another. 
Ephesians 4, to build up the body of Christ. And why? In 1 Peter 4.11, Peter makes the point that it's all so that God might be glorified in Jesus. How is God glorified in Jesus when you and I take our individual gifts strategically placed and serve one another? Because we are born as natural enemies. And the only thing that unites us is Jesus. And when we self-sacrificially serve one another, when I give myself and my gifts and I'm spent for you and you're spent for me, when we do that, we display the gospel to the world. We display what Jesus did for us on the cross. He laid himself down. He poured himself out. He was spent for us. He who is rich became poor so that we who were poor might become rich in him. This is how the body is supposed to function. Not thinking of itself, not holding up its gift, not comparing to those that are greater or those that are less, those that it deems greater or less, but looking to Jesus and taking its cues from Jesus, following the way he loves and he leads. And when I see how he gave himself up, I will be moved and motivated to do that for you. And that's the only thing that will ever move me and motivate me to do that. And this is the argument Paul is making here in this text. Let's bring these points together so far. If each member is unique and vitally important to the whole, and if each one has been strategically placed, if, you're, if you've been uniquely gifted and you're uniquely important and you've been strategically placed, then each member is vital to my individual spiritual growth. And I am vital to their individual spiritual growth. So that we have to agree with what Paul says, and this is his point in verse 21. I can't say, I don't need you. And by implication, I can't say, I don't need the church. And I don't need gospel community. Because if I were to separate that into Lone Ranger, super Christian, individual personal salvation which I have to be redeemed in Christ to be part of the community, but if I separate it and say this is all that it is, then I will never grow, I will never be changed to the degree that I'm intended to be changed living in community with you. Now listen, none of us is going to go around and say, hey, I'm God's gift to you. Do you... Nice to meet you. My name is Neil. I'm God's gift to you. Not a single person is going to go in here and go around here and say that. That's extreme arrogance. But what we can say based on what Paul's saying is we have been given to one another. Paul builds on this argument in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18. And he says, you know what? I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And he goes on. He says three things. But one of those things, he talks about the hope that we have in Christ. And then he talks about that you would understand your inheritance in the saints. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened and enlightened and that you would grow in your understanding that your inheritance is in the saints. That means two things. That my inheritance, my, my right standing with God and all of his spiritual blessings is found 
in the saints or understood more fully in the saints, among the saints. It's as you hold up the gospel mirror, as you sacrifice yourself, spent for me, give yourself for me and for each one another and I do you and all of us do that, then I'm holding up the image of the, of the gospel. I'm, I'm learning more and more about my inheritance in Christ Jesus as you and I do that together. But it also means that you are my inheritance. You are part of what I get as an inheritance in Christ Jesus. And I'm a part of what you get. I'm sorry. Uh, We are all part of one another now as redeemed individuals in Christ. And so by implication, I can't say I don't need you in my life. I can't stiff arm you. I can't put off the difficult work of, of deep relationship building. I can't say that I, I, don't, I don't have a part here. I can't say that you don't have a part here. I'm called to give myself on behalf of the body of Christ. And you are as well. We are together. So why does this matter to Paul? And why should it matter to us? In verse 25 we see he, he says this. That there may be, so you could, that means so that, so that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. He makes two statements. One's negative and one's positive. So that there would be no division in the body. I want you to understand this, Corinthian church. I want Mars Hill to understand this. I want every individual, I want Neil to understand this. I want every person to understand this, that you've been uniquely gifted, uniquely and strategically placed for the growth and and sanctification of the church And if you don't understand that, then you will be tempted to take your eyes off the giver and put it on the gift or on yourself, and you will begin to divide what Christ died to unite. I'm writing this so that there would be no division. That word division means tear apart. I'm writing this. I'm I'm hoping this. I'm praying that, that you get this so that you let nothing tear apart what Christ died to unite. Don't let your individual self-glory or gift glory or your thoughts of what you think the church ought to be, don't let that so elevate to the point that you allow it to divide or that you divide. Instead, bring that in submission to Jesus and use it to serve the rest of the body. And as every individual person does that, in the life of the church... We fight against what tends to divide churches. Instead, we fight for the opposite. The second half of the sentence, we fight for one another, fight towards uniting what typically divides or what typically has been divided. And that's the second phrase here. He says, I hope, I pray, I'm writing all of this, that there be no division in the body, but rather instead that each member have the same care for one another. Now, this word is fascinating. The word care is the Greek word merimna, and it's the same word that we studied last summer when we did our series on gospel peace. It's the same word that's often translated in the New Testament as anxiety or preoccupation 
or distracting care. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, when he says, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you will eat, what you will, how you will clothe yourselves, what you will drink. Don't be anxious about your life. And Paul takes that word, that preoccupation, that distracting care, and he flips it on its head and he turns it 180 degrees and he's, and he's encouraging, he's urging the church, don't, don't be concerned, be infinitely less concerned with yourself, be infinitely more concerned with others. Turn your inward self-concern into outward self-sacrificial love and concern for the body. I'm writing that there would be nothing that divides you. Instead, you would be united in Christ and that you would give the same care for one another, that you would be so utterly preoccupied and persistent in your focus for the needs and the hurts and the longings and the joys of the other, of the body. That would be your preoccupation. That would be your consuming interest. Infinitely less concerned with yourself, infinitely more concerned with others. Is that your growing sentiment towards the local gathering, the church? Is that your growing affection for the other believers in this congregation? What would ever make us think less of ourselves and more of others? We've already hinted at it. It's not natural. It's not natural. It's not willpower. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that will ever move you to give yourself for someone else and and to sustain that is to dwell on, see, encounter, embrace Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul gives us a case study of his own life. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. That, that literally translates... I was willing to give my own life because you had become very dear to us. Do you remember Paul's story? Paul was the one that celebrated the killing of Christians. He was participating in, in, in capturing them and having them martyred. The one that would stand by and cheer on and raise his fist and say yes to that is now saying I'm willing to be murdered myself for my brothers and sisters. How do you go from wanting to murder Christians to being willing to be killed on their behalf? The only way is through Jesus who gave himself up for us. And this is what Paul is trying to get to and trying to get us to understand. The only thing that would ever change us, the only thing that would ever transform us from self-centered, centered, inward focus to other-centered, self-sacrificial, the only thing that would ever do that is to see that that's what Jesus did for you and I. Difficult rebels that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as we stare at that, it moves us and melts us and it moves us to give ourselves for the sake of others. When we lose sight of Jesus... When we lose sight of the giver and we begin to focus on the gifts, the only natural result is discord, fracturing, and fragmentation. This is true from Genesis 3 all the way to now. It's exactly what happened in Genesis 3. It's the essence of sin is to look inward at myself, to elevate my view of what I think is superior and inferior, to say I'm the best judge of all of these things. Instead, 
We submit. So what's Paul's remedy? We've already said it, but this theme is, is dripping from the pages here. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. It carries over into 2 Corinthians. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. What's the motivation? What's the change agent that moves me from loving myself and living for myself? It's seeing my Savior who did not do that. Instead laid himself down for me. Leveraging all of his authority, all of his position, all of his riches, all of his inheritance, all of his gifts, all of his resources for my sake. And it's only when I meditate on that and I'm moved by that and I'm melted by that that I'll be moved to do that for you and you for me and us for one another. You say, okay, Neil, where's that in this text? Our favorite chapter in all of the Bible that we misquote at every wedding, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We say, look, this is all about marital love, and it is because it overflows from the marital love of Christ Jesus, but it's about Jesus first. Because Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is not rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And because he endured the cross... Because he died for me, I'm moved, I'm melted. I can't help but A, talk about it, and then B, take my cues, my love, my leadership, my life from him and do the same thing for others. So the only way that you turn into a church that begins to turn on one another and and escalate and, and think of yourself as higher or lesser or any of these things is when you lose sight of what Jesus did for you. But when we dwell on him, when we're moved and melted by what he did for us, we can't help but be people that recognize that though we have individual gifts, we are called to unite and leverage those gifts for the sake of others. If we remember that we have been redeemed individually into a family, there will be infinitely more caring, infinitely more giving, infinitely more sacrificial, infinitely more loving. It's not natural. It's not by willpower. It is only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads to verse 26. It leads us to begin to realize that when one member suffers, all suffer together. When one member is honored, all rejoice together. When one, when my hand is hurting, the only way I'll ever recognize that, that, that this hand is hurting and I recognize that it's part of my whole is recognize that it's part of the whole. When my hand is hurting, my whole body is hurting. When my brother or sister is hurting, I hurt. The only way that ever happens is to recognize that I've been united in Christ Jesus together as one. Why does this matter today? This is what you and I desperately long for. But it's also what the world desperately longs for. The world is desperate, desperate to 
to know and to be known, to belong to a diverse group where every person is valued and loved and living with a greater purpose. This is why diversity is such It's on the tip of every person's tongue. I want to know that my life matters. I want you to know my life matters. I want to know that you know my life matters. I want all, I want, I want you to recognize my 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 uniqueness. I want you to recognize who I am. And I want to live for something more. I want to belong to a community that loves and I can love, that, that gives and I can give to, that understands and I can be understood by. The problem is the world looks for that is desperately longing for that, but tries to solve it with horizontal human solutions. And all it ends up doing is, I'm superior and you're inferior, and and I'm not as bad as that person, but I'm better than that person, and those people are the worst, and these people are the worst. It ends up division and fracturing and fragmenting all of us. Only the Christian faith offers what the world wants, unity in the midst of great Diversity. Only the Christian faith recognizes that each person is individually important and yet part of a greater whole where they can be known and know, where they can be loved and loved, where they can give themselves to the greatest purpose of all, which is to love and exalt God and to be known by Him. Only the Christian faith offers the hope that a diverse people can be united as one, giving and receiving love and living for something more. That's the promise of redemption. It's the promise of the future kingdom of God. It's exactly how the Bible ends. In Revelation, three times it says that around the throne of God, a great multitude, a great diversity will be around the throne of God from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And our focus will not be on our tribes and our tongues and our nations and our language. Our, our focus will be on the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world for my sake and for our sake. And we will give him praise and him glory and him honor. This is what, how we were created, what we were created for, what we were redeemed to get a sample of here on earth in the local body, in the church, and it's how it will end. And so I have a few questions as we end. Are we practicing this now? Because it's as we practice this now, as we, as we model this now, as we live this out now, that we get a foretaste of what's to come. And it's also as we practice and live and model this now that the world sees, you know what, I've been looking for what they offer, what they experience, what they're given. I want that. But I've been looking for it in a thousand horizontal solutions that will never satisfy. Are you growing incrementally in your love and your affection for the body of Christ in this local gathering? Are you growing incrementally in your love for the individual parts, the individual members, the individual people in this local gathering? Have you even given yourself to a local gathering? Have you given yourself fully to saying, I, yes, I too, me too, I'm in it with you. I I agree, Jesus is king and I'm submitting, I've submitted my life to him and, and you and I are on the same page walking in the same direction according to the word. Are you giving yourself in that local community sacrificially for the good and the growth of each individual member? Are you leveraging all that you are, all that God has given you, all of your gifts for the sake of others? 
Which leads to a practical question. Do you even know what your spiritual gifts are? Do you know what they are? Do you know where you could serve? Do you know how you could use them in this body? Do you know where you could use them? That's a practical question. I would recommend that Romans 12, Paul encourages us to think soberly about ourselves. I'd recommend just beginning with questions about yourself. What is it that I love? What, are, what is it that I struggle with? What, what do you see as a deficit here in this community, in this body, in this congregation? What do you see as a deficit? That's an indication of something you think, something that you might be gifted by. I just don't think we do this enough. Instead of, as Bonhoeffer says, complaining about it, Recognize that might actually be your gifting. Have sober judgment about yourself. Wrestle well with these questions. What am I gifted at? What, am I, what, what, do I, what, what affinities do I have? Loves do I have? What, where do I get frustrated? I would recommend studying 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. I'd recommend studying Romans 12, or, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. And, and that gives you language for the various gifts. No list is complete. There, there are likely gifts that Paul doesn't even reference here. No, no, no gift list is complete, but it does give us language to begin to say, you know what, I think this is my gifting. I think this is my, I think this is where I'm, I'm, I'm called to serve or how I'm called to serve. I'd recommend that you do those things and then I'd, I'd, I'd recommend you that you do it and just serve. Just find a place to serve. Because it's as you serve that the rest of the body says, you know what, I think you are an encourager. I think you are a gifted teacher. I think that you are really good at hospitality. I think that you really can do this. I think that you should. It's only in the body of Christ, in the context of community, that we begin to have our gifts affirmed. Or as Brian and I were joking earlier, if you think that you have the gift of singing, and the body says, no, you don't. <laughs> Whatever gifting, the only way you find that is just by serving. Serve in multiple places. Give yourself to serving. Give yourself to the rest of the body. And that's when you begin to have the body say, yes, thumbs up, good job, keep doing that. Or, oh my goodness, I didn't even know that was a need. I never even thought of that. I would never have thought of that. You are so thoughtful and caring in that one way. This is how we begin to, to figure out. And then when you figure it out, be spent using it. Spend your life using it on behalf of others in order to, for the common good to build up the church for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this text. So much meat on the bones in this text, I feel like we've only nibbled on it. Above all, Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. We are all natural-born enemies. We would never unite in the way that we have and could and, and would apart from what Jesus has done on the cross. You are our foundation. As we sang earlier, Lord, may we root our lives, build our lives on the firm foundation of your love. And may we see how it melts us and moves us to give our lives for the sake of others. May we not just spend four weeks talking about gospel community. May we be a church that begins to experience it. I pray these things in Jesus' name.